you know, things happen that you just haven't planned for and you just kind of have to go with it. That quality of being comfortable with uncertainties of anything that can happen on the road is, is definitely something that I can apply to just life in general, but also in business. Hey, what's up, you guys? My name is Mick Krashovsky, and welcome to episode 95 of That Remote Life podcast, where we hear from location-independent entrepreneurs and professionals so you can learn to quit the cubicle and live life on your terms. Today on the podcast, I'm very excited to be joined by Vikram Bharati, the founder of The Draper Startup House, previously called Tribe Theory. The Draper Startup House is the first hostel chain in the world designed specifically for entrepreneurs and digital nomad and hopes to help create 1 million entrepreneurs by the year 2030. During this interview, Vikram and I discuss why he decided to start Tribe Theory after traveling the world for two years as a backpacker, how they've been able to grow into a global brand with locations in Asia, America, and Europe, and why creating more global entrepreneurs is such an important goal to them. We also get to discuss the general state of the digital nomad movement, why entrepreneurial skills are going to be so important in the future, and why they should be taught in school. And we also talked about some of the opportunities that Vikram sees in a post-COVID remote work-focused world. Now, before we jump into the episode, I'd love to hear what you think about this podcast. I've made it very easy to leave a review. All you got to do is just head over to ratethispodcast.com forward slash TRL and write your review. That's it. It's that easy. If you are enjoying this podcast, leaving a review is one of the best ways to support us. Reviews are a key statistic that Apple looks at in order to determine how to rank a podcast. So, Your review will directly help us climb the rank boards and attract new listeners. So thank you in advance for leaving a review if you choose to do so. If you want to check out the full show notes and a list of resources mentioned on this episode, you can do so over at thatremotelife.com forward slash episode 95. That's episode all spelled out followed by the number 95. All right, you guys, without further ado, let's dive into this interview with Vikram Bharati from the Draper Startup House. All right, Vikram, welcome to the show, man. Uh, I'm super excited to have you here. Thanks for having me. I'm excited too. Yeah, man. Well, so uh, I was kind of doing research for this interview and kind of trying to figure out how to start this out. And I got to say, you have a pretty impressive background. Uh, You have an MBA from USC. Uh, you've worked as a banker for JP Morgan, and then you went on and kind of got involved into the venture capital world. So obviously, uh, as the kid of immigrants, you have, uh, like every immigrant parents' child's like perfect kind of background and you know what you went on to do, but then you dropped all of that and you went backpacking for two years. So what happened, man? Like (laughs) what made you, what made you take that shift? (laughs) Well, you know, backpacking is something I've always wanted to do. And I just never got the chance to do it growing up. And so when when the stars aligned and I had ticked 
the boxes, as you mentioned. I, I just felt it was the right time to go pursue something that I've always wanted to do. And I, I initially, I wanted to just go for six months. But then after six months, uh, I, I, I didn't want to stop. So it ended up being two years of me essentially just hopping around the world. And it was the best two years of my life. Um, yeah, it, it's, it was an itch I had and, and I just had to do it. So did you not travel at all when you were a kid and you just kind of like saved up all that wanderlust? No, I, I, I traveled a little bit, but not as much as I wanted to. And um, not freely, you know, you go on vacations, you go on these things and it's not the same. I wanted to just be free, not have an agenda, not have uh, a timeline and just go with the flow. So I actually would only buy one-way tickets into countries and um, I didn't have a return ticket. So I bought a one-way ticket to Argentina and that was my first country that I went to. And I just literally would just go with the flow. I'd meet people, they'd say, hey, come to this country. Then I'd just take the train or hitchhike over to that country. <laughs> and th that's how two years went by. I had no plans at all. And how are you, I, I think, like when I was younger, I would have loved to, and I, I would still love to do that now, but I remember hearing stories of people doing what you did and going like, how in the hell did you fund this? Like, how did you have money saved up or were you picking up like side jobs? What did you do to kind of keep yourself on the road and, you know, have, have money in your pocket? So uh, three things. One, I had some money saved up, so that, that helped. Um, secondly, I was on a very low budget. So I kept things super, super, super low budget. And uh, thirdly, I was doing side gigs while I was traveling. So I was, I was trading and I was doing stuff on the computer, uh, doing some consulting work. So I was working a little bit. I, was, uh, I had some money saved up and I kept it super low budget. And I was traveling solo. So I, I didn't have um expectations of a partner to meet <laughs> so i just i kept it super low budget and that's that's how that's the reason why i didn't want to stop because i was just having so much fun and um I, you know i could just sort of dictate my own agenda as i was traveling so and, and it'd be you'd be surprised how how low budget you can travel on yeah i have a friend mitch who actually he did this whole big post on how uh, I think it was, I might be messing up the numbers here, but he, he wrote this blog post about how I'm going to pay off $20,000 of student loan debt by traveling. And it kind of like picked up because everybody was like, what? Like, isn't traveling expensive? But I think for people who don't travel often or think of traveling as like the, the only way to travel is to get $200 a night hotel rooms. A lot of those people don't actually realize that you can make traveling pretty inexpensive. And in many ways, like, uh, I mean, I started traveling because I was kind of more looking for geo-arbitrage. Like I got involved in entrepreneurship and I was like, well, I can either be living in the U.S. where it's really expensive or I can go to Eastern Europe where it's really cheap and there's nothing stopping me. So there's definitely cost benefits to to doing that. How were you or were you aware of the digital nomad movement at the time? Because essentially that's what you were doing. You were traveling and working online. So did you know about that at the time? And you kind of knew that that, it's, that that was something that you could do, or did you find that out about that later? Oh, no, I, I had never heard the term digital nomad. I, I actually had never heard the term backpacker. 
like really? as, as a lifestyle. I mean, I knew like I wanted to backpack for sure, but I didn't know that backpacking was such a huge cultural, um, you know, thing Movement, that, that yeah. millions of people do. And so for me, I just wanted to pick up a bag and travel. And that's what I just was calling backpacking. But then as I was backpacking, I got introduced to new lifestyles like digital nomadism, um, you know, backpacking. So it, I sort of fell into it. I just wanted to travel solo and that's all I wanted to do. So this is 2014. And at that time, you know, I'd spent eight years in, in corporate banking. And so I had no, I was very far away from um, the, you know, the, the lifestyles of a digital nomad. I had, I had no idea. But as I was backpacking and traveling, I would meet these folks. And that's how I sort of fell into it and got introduced to a whole different lifestyle and a whole new set of cultures, um, which I think is super exciting. Yeah, I I totally share that with you. I to me there is something about um like it's not necessarily traveling that for me is really ex- like I love travel, but I do think there's a diminishing return of travel. Like the the 10th place isn't really as exciting or as enriching as the first place, right? And the 20th isn't quite as educational and as interesting as the 10th place, right? Like it's sort of you, you really, in order to have the same excitement and learning opportunity of traveling to one new, very different place, you need to go to like 60 or something like that. But for me, the people who have figured out how to travel and work and are doing really cool things, they tend to be really, really cool people, right? Like they tend to be very interesting, a lot of times working a lot of cool things. And like, I, I remember I met uh, this guy in uh, Bulgaria, in Varda, Bulgaria, where I hang out a lot. Uh, who builds items inside of a video game. I don't know whether that's through coding or like actually the character, his character in the video game is, I'm not sure like exactly how it works, but he sells it to other characters in the video game for like real money. And he's like, yeah, I'm doing like a couple thousand dollars a month. And I was like, whoa, what? That's insane. That's so cool. Um, Yeah, I I do agree with you that there's definitely a diminishing return. I was done after two years two years of traveling at one point, actually I was done a year and a half into it, but I, I wanted to visit a bunch of more countries. So I kept pushing myself to, to, to go, but you're right. After you see, you know, X amount of city squares in Europe, then you're, you're sort of like, okay, every other museum looks the same. Every, every other city square looks the same. So after two years I was done uh, traveling. So I, I, I do agree with you, but you know, it's, it's, it's um, because I kept my travel so low budget and started staying in these backpacker hostels, it, it really introduced me to a whole new world, which I think is fascinating. And, and because I kind of fell into it, I think I was able to see it from the outside and have some insights and observations and perspective about that lifestyle, which um, which maybe someone who is in it may not be able to see, and and that's sort of what's led me to you know get on my current journey uh, in terms mm-hmm. of trying to build a business. Do you feel like the time that you spent traveling has now made you a better entrepreneur in some ways? Oh, d- definitely. There is. 
I think three or four qualities or traits that I picked up while I was traveling, which definitely helps me with what I'm doing currently. And, and one of them was definitely being able to deal with uncertainties. Because when you're traveling solo, you don't really have an agenda. Things, you know, things happen that you just haven't planned for and you just kind of have to go with it. And so that 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 quality of being comfortable with uncertainties of anything that can happen on the road is is definitely something that I can apply to just life in general, but also in business. And then also um, the idea of being able to deal with people from all around the world. You know, like one of the general theses that I picked up while I was traveling was everyone is nice. Like people are nice. I, I never really came across any terrible situations anywhere I went, you know, whether it's Morocco, whether it's, you know, Peru or Tokyo, people are generally really, really nice. And, and we, I, I think when you don't travel, you have the stigma that the world is a terrible place because you see all these headlines in the media, it's completely bombarded in your face of all the things that are going wrong in the world. But you know, you, you go to little towns and villages around the world and you say, people are just, people, all, they all want the same thing. People just want to be happy and, and people are nice. So um, in business, then, you know, you realize that generally you can, you know, trust should come first. Like you should give trust first because generally people want to be nice and do the right things. Yeah, I totally agree. I think, you know, Travel for me is like, and it's so, you're totally right, is that it makes you far more aware of the world than, I think there's like, I have friends who have, for for example, I think this is far more common in the United States than it is in most countries, but they've never like left like the state or or haven't really traveled abroad. And that first time traveling, they like really realize like, oh, like my little corner of the world isn't what the rest of the world is like, but at the same time, the people who live there still have the same desires and they still want the best for their kids and the best for their families and, and so on and so forth. So, you know, after you you traveled and you said that you were kind of like done traveling after a year and a half, but you, you kept going. At what point during that traveling did you decide to start Tribe Theory and what, what is now the Draper Startup House, but at the time it's called Tribe Theory. At what point during your travels did that idea and that concept kind of um, come up for you and, and why do that in the first place? Yeah, so the, the idea to build this, I guess the, it was percolating in my head uh, as I was traveling, but it didn't really manifest in terms of desire to build uh, this concept until... I moved to Singapore uh, towards the end of my travels. But while I was traveling, I had some observations uh, and particularly I had three sort of key observations. <clears throat> the, the, and this is all, these observations are about the, uh, the backpacking culture and the backpacking hostel spaces that I was staying in. And by the way, I'm, I'm older now, so the, the backpacking hostel staying in you know, a 20 dorm room for $5 a night is, is probably not something that I, I, I do anymore. <laughs> but w- when I did do it, um, those spaces, those backpacker hostel, you know, legit backpacking hostel uh, spaces, that's where I was staying. And, and I had three observations. The first one was 
these spaces, tiny spaces, are such great aggregators of people. You know, I'd be staying in a in a backpacker hostel in in, in say um, somewhere in the Ukraine, and I'd be having beers with people from 30 countries, right? Like mm -hmm. people from all around the world are there at night drinking cheap beers and you're having these awesome conversations. So great aggregators of people from all around the world. And in fact, I actually haven't come across any physical spaces anywhere in the world where you can, in a, such a small space, get people from all around the world to come and, and, and hang out. So, so that's great aggregators of spaces of, of people. Secondly, uh, great distribution points. Like if you are sitting there and telling a story, it sort of travels the world because everyone's sort of connected around the world. So mm. great distribution points. Uh, the third insight was that all of the people that I was hanging out with, they were very interesting people. They're young. I call them seekers now because they're all sort of, it was, they were like me. They were seeking for new things, new experiences. They're open-minded. They want to learn new cultures. They want to experience new things. So they're open-minded. They're they're seeking for new things. They're you know generally young. So very interesting groups of people. So all of that led me to the insight, which was all of these spaces have all these great qualities, but all of these spaces are only being used for tourism. You know, you go to a backpacker hostel. You do the pub crawls, which are great. You, you do the city walks, which are great. You get introduced to all the you know cheap food places in the city, which are great. So great stuff, but it's all tourism, uh, travel and tourism. And so the insight was, wow, you can actually do a lot more in these spaces than just what is currently offered. And and you know I realized that these spaces are actually universities. They're like education spaces. You're learning so much about the cultures of the city, the histories of the city. So they're sort of like micro campuses in a way. They're just not positioned as campuses. And, um, you know, there's all these ideas that are flowing through these spaces. I, I just remember sitting there and talking about finance with like folks from all around the world. And, and I learned about how does, you know, the central banks work in your country. And so great, great uh, uh, spaces for ideas. So I just realized that, wow, you could, these are like literally small innovation hubs. Mm. That's what they are. They're just not being positioned as such. And so um, in the back of my mind, these ideas and insights were there, but I never thought about turning that into a business idea until much later. So the genesis of the idea was built, being built up as I was traveling. And what was sort of the the inflection point for that? At what point did it come from or go from an idea that was percolating in the back of your head to like, hey, we're doing this? Towards the end of my trip, the last six months of my trip, I wanted to sort of be in, I didn't want to travel, like hop around as much uh, because I was hopping around a new country every, every week. I was going to a new country or going to a new city every few days. And I, I started getting tired of just hopping a, a lot. So I, I spent some time um, put, like staying. I got a place in Bangkok, and I love the city. It's just like one of the most exciting cities in the world for me. So I got a, a place there, and I was doing Southeast Asia. But in Bangkok, I actually started um, like a, a small startup incubator. 
and um, we got some friends together and we're, we're building six or seven companies. So we're building a, um, a, a marketplace for plastic surgery. We're building an accounting software. We're building a food delivery app. Like we're building all these ideas into, in this like small hacker house that we had put together. And um, I was traveling to Singapore to raise money for these ideas during, you know, during those last six months. And um, I got introduced to the venture capital world in Singapore because I was, I was coming here basically every few weeks to raise money. So I was getting introduced to VCs and I was showing them all these different ideas we we're working on. And um, during that time, I, I met a girl in, in Bangkok and um, she was living in Singapore. So we, you know, we fell in love. We're married now. We're, we just had our second child. Congratulations. And, um, thank you. Thank you. Yeah. So, so she was like, hey, either I moved to Bangkok or you moved to Singapore. We can't do this long distance thing. So I ended up moving to Singapore. And um, at that point, I, I needed a job. Like I was two years of traveling. So um, I actually got a really awesome job. One of the VCs that I had been talking to um, while I was raising capital, they were looking for someone like me uh, who had banking experience, who had experience fundraising and experience like building things and tinkering with things. So they offered me a job to run a fund in Singapore. And um, so I was running around all of Asia um, trying to find early stage companies to invest in. So I did about 10 investments in Malaysia, Japan, India, um, Philippines, like Southeast Asia uh, mm -hmm. mostly. And um, the, the fund I was working with was a very interesting fund. It was run by, well, it was started by this Japanese entrepreneur who had taken the company public and, and taken the proceeds to start this new company and this new fund. He told me, Vikram, um, you know, I'm looking for entrepreneurs. I'm not looking for bankers. So if I want you to start a company in a year, and so I was like, sure, that's perfect. That's exactly what I <laughs> Music to my ears. Yeah. So as, as this one year of me investing in companies, I was thinking of business ideas like, hey, what's the next thing I want to work on? And um, I, as I was traveling, I was getting, I, I was very much looking for young very early stage ideas. And I noticed that all of these startups that I was talking to were on a very tight budget. And when they would travel to different places, they're staying like very small budget, you know, mm. uh, hotels or, or backpacker hostels. And it just wasn't the right conducive spaces for them. They were staying there because it was super cheap. And so then I was like, what if we had spaces that were inexpensive, but had like, this whole entrepreneurial ecosystem in the space, then wouldn't that be more conducive for these folks? So those sort of ideas started percolating. And then I started putting the two and two together with my travels. And so then I pitched the idea to, to Shuhei, who, who's the founder of the fund. And I said, hey, what if we build a chain of like backpacker hostels that are really a combination of universities, investment houses, uh, and um, has a whole entrepreneurial ecosystem. And he was like, okay, yeah, that's, that's a good idea. Uh, here, he wrote me a first check. He gave me a check and said, okay, you've got three months to build me a prototype. So 
I had a deadline and I had a check. And so I used to walk, I used to walk past this, uh, this backpacker hostel to go to work every day. And I was just like, how am I going to build a prototype with a small check, you know, in, in a couple of months. So I walked into this, um, the backpacker hostel, spoke to the owner and I asked him if he wanted to sell the business. And he was like, yeah, I'm actually trying to sell the business. <laughs> so literally the next day I bought the business and we repurposed it into a startup house, rebranded it into Tribe Theory and just magic started happening. You know, people from all around the world would come there. And, and because Singapore is such a, it's a, it's a hub for raising capital. It's a mm-hmm. money center. So we would, we, all of a sudden overnight, we would just have like all these startups from all around the world hanging out there, you know, raising money, looking for founders, looking for co-founders, looking for developers. And it just became like this hive that um, we knew that, you know, there's, there's something here. And so we took that concept uh, regionally. We opened up a few more spaces and um, yeah, I mean, magic was happening Uh, all the things where we're we were imagining started happening just by the fact that these were startup houses and so in in bali you know all of these digital nomads who were actually trying to build things would come and stay with us because um they would find the right networks while they were there and so it's just a lot of magic started happening and we, we knew we were on to something uh, at that point. Yeah. So before we kind of go any further, because I definitely want to dive in a little bit deeper on that, but uh, just so that people don't get confused with names and that kind of stuff. Um, you guys did rebrand from Tribe Theory to now you are called the Draper Startup House. Can you kind of quickly go over why that change happened and, and, you know, kind of the story around that, just so that we don't have to constantly be saying, you know, tribe theory, which is now the Draper startup house. And people are like, what is going on here? You know? So can you just kind of quickly go over, you know, why the change happened? Sure. Sure. So the tribe theory was the first brand. And the reason why we named it tribe theory at the time was the, the first space we launched, which was just a prototype it was the headquarters for the first Chinese clan in, mm. in Singapore. So the, the, the history goes that in 1840, uh, Raffles, who was the British um, uh, military uh, commander, he came to Singapore to, to colonize the country or the island. And there was a 16-year-old carpenter from, from the Guangdong province in China who ended up on the on the ship with him and became his carpenter and so when the the ship landed on uh, on the island this this uh 16 year old kid he did some scouting for raffles to make sure that there was no danger and uh, you know he helped plant the british flag on 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 the island and so this this 16 year old kid he he got uh, raffles was so happy with him he gave him a piece of land and he used that to build businesses. You know, he did timber and spices and became a very, very wealthy uh, entrepreneur. So he wanted to give back. So he started the, the first Chinese clan or association in Singapore. And this was a place where immigrants like him from his province of China would come. When they land in Singapore, they would come to this house to make friends, to get business networks, to find connections. So that house where we first uh, started our prototype 
that was the place. And so we thought it was so appropriate to call it tribe theory because, you know, everyone has ideas about what, what a tribe is, but this, this space literally was what we wanted to do. Mm. So as we expanded and, and uh, we were then a year later, we were in five countries. And one day um, we, uh, we got approached by Tim Draper's, um, uh, some of uh, you know, the people that work with him. They had heard about us and, and they loved what we were doing. And um, I, I don't know if you know who Tim Draper is, but he's, he's a, a little bit of a well-known uh, investor in Silicon Valley who has um, you know, a, a bit of a very global ecosystem that he's created for, for startups. And he's and, a big uh, proponent of like Bitcoin now as well, right? And cryptocurrencies and kind of the, the, this whole new world of global finance. Correct. Yeah. He's a, he's a big believer in Bitcoin and a big proponent of Bitcoin. Uh, also, he's just, he's, he's had some really good wins. He's, you know, he was one of the first investors in Hotmail, which sort of revolutionized uh, email. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think he has 30 or 40 unicorns under his belt. You know, Tesla, SpaceX, I, I don't know. The name goes on and on. Mm-hmm. So A lot of name brand companies that now people would recognize. I think Robinhood as well and like some of yeah, these other ones. Yeah, Coinbase. So he's got, he's, he has a lot of good uh, wins uh, in terms of like tech companies. And, and he's built a Draper Venture Network, which is a network of 24 venture capital funds around the world. So anywhere from Argentina to Mexico, to Poland, to Japan, to Australia, there's all these venture capital funds that are part of the Draper Venture Network. And so he's, he's actually, he was one of the first people to globalize venture capital because, you know, venture capital kind of started in, in the Bay Area originally. Um, and it was a very much like, a, you know, a U.S. centric kind of thing. But he was one of the first folks, or at least his dad, to really take it global and, and uh, internationalize and globalize the venture capital uh, industry. And so he heard about what we were doing and he just, he loved the idea. So I went out to meet him in San Mateo and he you know, basically said, look, this thing has potential. Why don't you join our brand and our ecosystem? He invested capital into the company and um, <clears throat> for me, it was a no-brainer because I wanted to build an entrepreneurial ecosystem. Like I wanted to build, you know, I wanted to have a fund and I wanted to have a, you know, education, do all of these things. So joining his ecosystem was a no-brainer because we now didn't have to go out and build an ecosystem. Mm-hmm. We could just essentially build distribution points. And so um, earlier this year, we rebranded to, to Draper Startup House and now we're part of the Draper uh, startup ecosystem. So we have access to, you know, the, the venture funds, we have access to Draper University, which is the education arm. Um, and so now we can very quickly, you know, do, um, do all the things we wanted to do. So now, now it's called Draper Startup House. So kind of coming back to what the, you know, Draper Startup House is, you know, you kind of talked about the fact that this was a natural place for people who are entrepreneurs and who are traveling or at least entrepreneurial. They kind of come together and and be in a community together. But in what other ways is the experience different if somebody comes to the Draper Startup House as opposed to going to another, you know, 
uh, hostel or, or just getting an Airbnb or whatever else a digital nomad might do. What what is like if I were to walk into a location, uh, you know, somewhere in the world? What would my experience be like as I walk through the door? Sure. <clears throat> so just just uh, for clarity, what we are doing is still experimental. We're two and a half years old as a company, and uh, this idea is still experimental. I mean, I, we know that it works mostly, but it's not perfect. And uh, because of COVID this year, we, we just haven't had the full chance to really like experiment fully and, and you know, iron out the kinks and, and, and really build a solid business model. So it's still experimental uh, in, in, my, in, in, my, in my mind. We have a very long ways to go. But <clears throat> at the heart of it, uh, what we're trying to do is two things. Uh, one, we want to create a new category in hospitality. So if you think about just hospitality in general, like you look at the Hiltons or you look at the Holiday Inns or any sort of hotel chains, um, there's not been a lot of innovation in the traditional hospitality model. There's always new hospitality brands that pop up. But if you look under the hood, it's a shade of new color schemes. You know, there, you know it's, it's a shade of new music I and mean, maybe a new type of restaurant, new foods. Maybe they're targeting a, a, a different crowd. But generally, there has been no sort of fundamentally new innovation in the hospitality space. Um, I mean, I, I guess the last in, like major innovation is probably Airbnb. But at the end of the day, Airbnb is sort of a marketplace. And I'm talking about like a real unique uh, innovation. And so <clears throat> the idea is <clears throat> how do you take a, a space like, like a hotel space and do a lot more with it than just accommodation and entertainment? Mm -hmm. And so we're saying, hey, these spaces can be university campuses. These spaces can be traditional hospitality. And these spaces can be investment houses where all of the ideas floating around well, what if what if we you know we could find a way to invest in those ideas um, so we're trying to create a new category in hospitality which requires a lot more work than we have put in but really creating a new hospitality concept so that's one uh, secondly we want to create a new sort of tourism model called entrepreneurial tourism and this sort of came about when I was traveling, you know, I, I would do all the city walks and all the, all the pub crawls and all the tasting of the foods. But people are now interested in what's happening in sort of the startup world and what's happening in the business world when I go to a new city. Mm -hmm. And so it was missing when I was traveling. So if I went to Berlin as a backpacker, I would get very much introduced to the, the Berlin tourism space, but I have no way to really get into the local entrepreneurial community. Now, where are the, you know, where are the startups? Where are the, the investment houses? And so these spaces can be landing pads where people can come and really get plugged into the local entrepreneurial community. And every city has an entrepreneurial community, has a business community. And so um, creating this entrepreneurial tourism as, as a category and this new hospitality category 
And the goal with this is all the floating ideas and seekers, as we call them, you know, we can help them build businesses. And so now our mission has become a lot more than hospitality. Our mission now is by 2030, so we've got 10 years, we want to help build a million businesses around the world through our physical infrastructure. And so now our concept has become larger than life because we're saying to governments and we're saying to you know, cities that, hey, we can actually help with economic development in your city or in your country because all of these people are coming through these countries anyways. We're just building the ability for them to actually build businesses in your country. And I'll give you an example. When I was backpacking, I went to Myanmar for the first time in 2015 or 2014. It was five, six years ago when the country was barely just opening up. It had been under you know, uh, military rule for a long time and was just starting to open up. And that's when you know, a SIM card that you put on your phone costed $2,000. Now it's like $2. And I was staying in this backpacker hostel and it was full of Israelis. And I thought that was fantastic because these were all Israelis who had just graduated from the military because in Israel, I think there's a mandatory military mm -hmm. service. And then when they're done, they get like six months to go travel. And, and Israelis, for some reason, are super adventurous. And so they go, they go do, they go to Mongolia, they go motorbiking in Mongolia. They do all this crazy adventure stuff. So there, there was like this natural attraction, I think, at the time to go to Myanmar, which is sort of like this new adventurous, new frontier. And um, the, all of these Israelis, like super well-educated, you know, they, they, they're like cybersecurity experts. They're coming out of the military, super well-trained in, 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 in a lot of things. And they're, you know, they're sitting in Yangon and all they're doing is like visiting the pagodas you know, going to the, the, the street food markets, which is all great. But like, God, they have so much more to contribute to the country than just spending dollars on, you know, the food stalls and, and the pagodas. They have this intellectual skill set that they could share with the locals. And so now we have a startup house in Yangon. And when all of these tourists and backpackers who come, we tell them, hey, Here's all of these startup events happening in Yangon. Here's all these companies that need help with X, Y, and Z. And we're seeing that our tourists or our backpackers who are staying there, they're actually saying, I want the real local experience. I want to go and talk to these entrepreneurs, local entrepreneurs, and I want to see if I can help them build a company. And so this mind share that's, that's happening is actually really, really good for the country because they're now able to extract from these tourists more than just their tourism dollars, but their intellectual ability and skill set. So I think this, if we're able to execute on this, we'll be able to really like genuinely create value that's on like unlocking something that's sort of trapped right now. Um, so that's, that's the goal. I love this concept of entrepreneurial tourism because that's essentially what I do. And what that's the reason why I travel. Like I love to go to new places and find out what's going on here. What are the people that are here? Like what kind of businesses are going on in here? Like I, I love that. That is like, you know, you were saying that you were kind of getting sick of traveling at one point. And I'm definitely like, I can't go to another, you know, like 
cute like shop or like whatever. I love to go and find the co-working spaces and go work there for a few weeks and meet the people and go to events and those sort of things. So I totally understand this sort of creating a hub for that where if I'm coming over to uh, Singapore and I want to find out what's going on in there and then like kind of get clicked into the local economy, the local sphere, you know, a place that is central would be really great. I, I usually use a co-working spaces for that, but I can totally see the difference between like, hey, come live here, like meet, meet the people that are here. Um, and the other thing that I love about this is there's obviously this big problem in the digital nomad space of a lot of digital nomads feel like they're takers, right? Like we go to new locations and we sort of get a lot of benefit out of that location, but we don't necessarily give back. And that's been a, a big problem, I think, is that, you know, we go and we live in these places, we eat cheap food and stay in cheap places, but we don't really give back to that economy in any way. And, and I like this idea of, hey, come here and and actually join into the ecosystem and, and give back to it. So I really love that. And I think that that's such a such a cool way to to do tourism. But I want to I want to ask you something. I'm I'm really one thing that's kind of a question mark for me in this entire um, business model, so to say, is how do you actually filter the people that come to stay at the Draper Startup House, right? Because a lot of uh, if we were to look at other um, co living spaces or other uh, hostels, they use a lot of these third party apps, right? Where I'd come in, look at Booking.com, find a, a hostel, and go there. But how do you like filter so that there aren't backpackers that are coming, but there are people who are coming who are interested in entrepreneurship? Yeah. I, I, this is a really, really good question, and I think it's it's a central question because if you get that right, then a lot of other things fall in place. And to get what you're saying right, like getting the right people into the space, is probably the hardest thing to do. And um, we're we're still trying to figure it out, to be honest. But here's here's some uh, statistics that I can share with you over that you know, over the last two and a half years that we have seen in our spaces. So our spaces are completely open to anyone that can that wants to come and stay. So there's no requirements. You know, you don't have to check a box that I am this type of a person. We're 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 on Booking.com and Agoda and Expedia and Hustle World and Air. We're we're available to anyone who wants to come and stay. But what we have noticed is people self-select themselves into our space because of the way we have positioned ourselves. Let's just take booking.com an example. If you go to booking.com, you type in Draper Startup House, it'll, it'll say Draper Startup House for entrepreneurs. The photos that are there are like a very specific type of photo. So if you're a family of three kids who, who you know, you're not going to come and stay in a place where clearly it's not meant for you. So just because of the, the way we have positioned ourselves on these third-party sites, um, there's a lot of self-selection that happens. So, so that's a good thing. Now, in the beginning, we were like, oh, we have to be very careful in who we let in. We have to be very you know, tight controls because uh, we, we want to be a place where only these types of people come in. And, and actually, that approach turned out to be wrong for us. Because by being an open place, there were so many people that came that we would have never 
had in our space. If it wasn't, they stumbled into our space. They found us on Agoda and they just literally just were like, oh, this place is like cool. So they they come now because we didn't have any of these tight controls. Actually, it turned out to be much better for us because we we then got customers and guests who we would have never had if we had these tight controls. Uh, so that's two. thirdly, you know, we we say that innovation doesn't happen in a vacuum. And so if it's a house full of people staring at the computers and 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 just building stuff all the time, it's just not fun. We actually want a place where it's a combination of, you know, work, get stuff done, but also fun. So we want the photographers and the creatives and the and the dancers and the artists to be there. Like, I think the combination of like very interesting people, that combination makes the experience a lot better. Um, but the, the observation for us has been that generally around 60 to 70% of the people that come and stay with us are sort of like the target audience we're trying to uh, get anyways. And the other 30 and 35% of the folks that I wouldn't say are our target audience, but they just add a lot more flavor to the mix. And so I think it's a positive thing. I mean, this year, even despite COVID, and, and this year was terrible for our business. I mean, absolutely terrible for our business. But, you know, in all our spaces, we served 3,000 guests from 92 different countries in, in, in all our uh, spaces globally. And out of those 3,000 guests, about 60% were our target audience. And that's a lot of people that we've been physically, you know, average stays around seven days. And in seven days, God, you can really get to know someone and, and help them build their uh, their their ideas, and so uh, we're so to, to long long winded answer, but um, to be concise, we're still trying to figure it out. But there's a self selection process that's happening, which is which has been a very positive thing. How do you? Because the other sort of uh, you know you have the people, but then the other thing is the locations, right? And you guys have several locations. Uh, there's a lot in um, Southeast Asia. There's I know you guys have Estonia and Lisbon as well, and then you also have Austin. That's the only U.S. location at the moment, correct? Yeah. So Austin is our first U.S. location. Uh, the plan is to to have spaces in all the major cities. So our ambition in the US. is. In, in the world is, um, and of course, in the U.S. as well. So Austin is the first location, but we want to have spaces all around the U.S., um, definitely. So this is the, like, how do you choose a city right now? Because that's really interesting. I think that that's like the other variable, right, is you have the people as one variable, and then the other variable is like the locations. So right now when you're thinking about what are the next, like, 10 locations that you're going to be, um, setting up Draper startup houses in. What are the criteria? Do you have any ideas what those cities might be so that people can kind of like look forward to that? Yeah. So I, there, there's two categories of spaces uh, or, or uh, cities or locations that we uh, want to be in. One is um, major city centers that are startup hubs. So places like Berlin, uh, places like London, places like uh, Tokyo. These are all uh, cities that we want to be in, urban city centers, um, you know, startup hubs. So we want to be there. But then also, secondly, we want to be in places where there are emerging uh, places. 
So you mentioned, you know, <clears throat> Eastern Europe. Uh, we want to be in Warsaw. We want to be in Prague. We want to be in, um, you know, Kiev. We want to be in those sort of like emerging spaces. Uh, and then also we want to be in sort of like idyllic spaces where, um, you know, like a Bali is not a startup hub, but Bali is a place where a lot of uh, talented people come through that um, that we can be in touch with in other parts of the world as they're traveling around. Uh, Chiang Mai is not a startup hub, but it, it is. It is starting to become a startup hub. It's it's an emerging, it's the second biggest city in Thailand. And there, you know, a lot of people are moving to Chiang Mai to build on, you know, work on their businesses. Mm -hmm. So um, th these are the sort of like criteria we'll look at, but ultimately the the, the most, the, the most significant criteria and the biggest um, thing that we look at is can we get the right team to be there? So for instance, in Chiang Mai, <clears throat> the person that's uh, building uh, Draper Startup House in Chiang Mai, her name is Lily. She's from Chiang Mai. She lives in Chiang Mai. And you know she's exactly the right person to build this uh, business. And she just happened to be in Chiang Mai. If she was in Bangkok, she would have built it in Bangkok. So finding the right people who are committed to that city. The reason where we're in Estonia is because uh, our co-founder, Indrek, who is building Draper Startup House in Estonia, he's Estonian and he just happened to, he loved, you know, he, I met him in Singapore and he was like, hey, I want to take this to Estonia. So, we, so he was the right person to do it and he was committed to that city. So that's the first thing we look at. Can, who, who are the right people and are they committed to that city? And then, and then we look at, is this the right city or whatnot? Yeah, I saw something on the website about that you guys have an ambassador program where it's like, hey, if you think a city is a good fit, you know, like help us start a place there. What is like, if somebody's listening to this and they're like, oh, I know a place, I know a city where they should have a Draper Startup House, what would be the process for them to come? And then like, what do you offer as support to actually establish a Draper Startup House in that new city? Yeah, so we, we have uh, basically anyone that's come through our spaces and stayed with us and become a community member, you know, we ask them, hey, do you want to become an ambassador? And, and a lot of times they do. So we have ambassadors all around the world. We have ambassadors in like Beirut, you know, and these are Fuad and, and George from Lebanon who had stayed with us in Singapore, uh, who, who came here to be part of a, an accelerator program. And they went back to Lebanon and they're our ambassadors. And hopefully someday we can do something in Lebanon uh, or, you know, the people from Turkey who stayed with us. Um, so we, we definitely want to have ambassadors in terms of um, people who want to launch Draper Startup House in their respective city. We've sort of put that on hold right now just because of COVID. But um, we're also trying to figure out the way to scale our business. Because right now, as you know, scaling physical infrastructure and physical businesses is not easy. And also, you really have to figure out the business model. Because in theory, it's a great idea to think okay we have like these startup houses all around the world but in practicality making that work with the right consistency with the right experience and the right business model where you know it's built on uh, a very solid business foundation is a very difficult thing to do and one of the things that i um you know told tim when 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 we first met and he was asking about our, our business idea was I really want to commercialize this concept. 
So, you know, you know the, the TV show Silicon Valley, where there's like the hacker homes where, you know, people are, and, and by the way, there are a lot of hacker homes around the world. You know, there's a lot of hacker houses in, in, in the Bay Area and there's hacker houses around the world. And these are a house where some friends, you know, they open it up on Airbnb and turn them into a hacker houses. It's great, but they're not commercially viable businesses, right? They're like, we want, I want to commercialize this concept into a real hospitality business that's licensed, that, you know, that can actually be a real business model. And so doing, doing that is a lot more difficult because you have to look at the right cities. We have to look at the right, you know, real estate uh, ratio. You have to look at the right financing. You have to look at, so there's a lot of real commercial real estate that goes into this because we actually don't want this to be, you know, very informal hacker houses around the world because we want to commercialize it. So we're trying to figure that out. And, you know, we've learned from other companies who have done something similar. We, we look at WeWork, who scaled very fast, but then they didn't have the right sort of, you know, solid uh, commercial business foundations uh, from a unit economics perspective. And so these are all things we're learning from and saying, how can we build this as a commercial business with the right unit economics? And it's probably not going to be informal hacker houses around the world. Yeah, I was just going to say WeWork is maybe not the best business model to study on how to do this successfully since, you know, they kind of <laughs> went up, but then everybody kind of crashed down. But yeah, I think I, I totally agree with you. I understand what you're saying is like anyone can kind of do what you guys have done in a single entity, right? Like anybody can go and open up a co-living space and a co-working space together in a certain spot, but actually doing that at scale and figuring out the playbook that works in Austin and in Chiang Mai and in, you know, Berlin, that's kind of going to be the secret sauce. It's almost like I think about it as like, you know, a McDonald's that's like in a different city is essentially you need to figure out like, what is that model behind it that essentially allows you to really go anywhere? Yeah, definitely. And, and you know, I actually, for me, I love studying WeWork because I think they did a lot of things right. And, and, and of course, they did a lot of things that didn't work out, but you got to give WeWork credit for, you know, for being the first mover in the sense that they were the first ones to say, wow, we can, we can scale a business really, really fast. And of course, they threw a lot of money at it, but, you know, the money was given to them by, by someone to, to, to do this, right? And, but, and they were the first movers who actually kind of showed that you can actually scale real estate relatively fast because before we work you know like i always say that there's it, it before the internet things were local right so you only knew your local communities and the internet came around and, and and then things became global but then now we're saying hey actually is it possible to scale a real estate model better than it was done before. And I think WeWork was the first mover to try to do this. And, and I think there's a lot of things we can learn from there, but they, they, they did a lot of things right. I mean, in terms of building a great brand, you know, that people love. And then when you go into WeWork, it's amazing to go work there. Well, and I think they, you know, credit where credit is, is due. I think that they made co-working uh, a household term, right? I think co-working before them was a far more niche idea that maybe not a lot of people had heard of. 
and it really became something that everybody knows what it is because of WeWork. Whether they had a successful business model behind the business or not, they they definitely succeeded at that. Um, so a hundred percent. I do want to ask because you did mention this that you guys have a slogan that is that it's your goal to create a million entrepreneurs by twenty thirty. Um, now that is is certainly a big goal, and I understand the idea of having a big goal that drives sort of everybody that, that comes to work for you. But how do you? Why? So I'm trying to figure out how to ask this because I I see a huge value of more people being entrepreneurial, right? Uh, people, I don't think entrepreneurship as a skill is taught in in school enough. I think a lot of kids are still being taught like, hey, go to college, get a job and stay in the career. And I think that the writing was on the wall that that sort of lifestyle was going to be over that sort of employment maybe wasn't going to be as popular or, or as certain or as safe as a path as it once was covid just took that and sped that up you know by a hundred because so many people just realized that hey we can hire freelancers from all over the world we don't need to have people in the office and all of a sudden uh, i think freelancing and these sort of entrepreneurial skills are going to be far more uh, important so can you just talk about why is is this sort of the reason why it's important for you guys to create a million entrepreneurs like give us a little bit more of background to that goal because i do think it's a really interesting goal yeah so so the general thesis as you rightfully said is the world will be a better place if more and more people become masters of their own destiny Mm. and 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 be able to you know, think in a more entrepreneurial way. And so when we look at what is it that we're really trying to do as a business, I think we're trying to contribute to society by enabling more and more people to become masters of their own destiny. Now, whether they're a solopreneur, you know, running their one-person business, e-commerce business to, to, to real company that that has you know employees and payroll and 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 trying to build tools and services that that's you know that are, are useful to society. The spectrum is very very wide. It could be you know we, we say about a million entrepreneurs, and we don't mean a million tech entrepreneurs. You know we're helping our employees launch brown their own brownie business. You know, and so the, the idea is to really help people become masters on their on their their of their own destiny whether it's a very small mom and pop business to to a large scale business and so just the, the general thesis is just that the more we try to do that the more solutions there will be to a lot of the problems in the world and it's for us the best platform to be able to achieve this now the number of a million i hope it's more than a million because it's you know, there's 7 billion people in the world. And if our ambition is to have spaces all around the world in all the major cities, now, reaching a million people is going to be very, very easy. It's not going to be difficult. But we chose million because it's it's a starting point. Uh, and, and we've given ourselves 10 years to do it. And now that we're part of the Draper ecosystem, you know, we have access to all of these different venture funds around the world. So there's a lot we can do from an education perspective, from a uh, investments perspective. So I don't think a million is going to be a very hard number to reach, but 
it's good to have a milestone that's on the wall that you can all sort of work towards. So I think it's a bit more of a symbolic number than 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 anything else, to be honest. But but the thesis is, I think, very solid and strong, and and it makes the hospitality concept more interesting because then now it's not just about you know how many layers or sheets do you have on your bed to like who are the people staying there and how can we actually help them fulfill their dreams and as a business if that's your thesis and that's your goal there's so many different revenue streams that you can actually build in that hospitality space because no longer are you just accommodation you could be i mean as an investment house you could be have so many different streams to help people fundraise and 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 finance their businesses and so i i think the combination of all of these things is something that's complex, but you need a little bit of complexity to make a business model, I think, exciting. Mm. Yeah. I, you know, for me, like entrepreneurship is, and, and, and I think it's interesting because we kind of are talking about several different types of businesses, right? And you kind of mentioned in passing that you don't think of Chiang Mai as a startup city, but to me, it's a, certainly a startup city. Now the, the startups, quote unquote, that are happening, there are different than what you might see in Silicon Valley, right? Where in Silicon Valley, you're getting a lot of funded tech startups. While in Chiang Mai, there are tons of people going there to start businesses that are far more maybe services or e-commerce or productized services or these sort of, you know, it is a digital nomad hub and a lot of digital nomads like those businesses. So for me, like I, I totally agree. And I think, you know, uh, I was just speaking with a friend today who uh, was telling me that he has never, he helps train freelancers and helps them, you know, build that into a sustainable business. And the thing he said is we have had a huge explosion of people coming in and it's mostly people who are skilled professionals who don't have a job anymore because of COVID. And they're trying to figure out how to take their skill and, and start their own business or their own freelancing through that. So I, I totally agree. I think that you, you don't need to have a startup that's funded in order to be an entrepreneur in order to, like you said, control your destiny. I think that's what really the goal for a lot of entrepreneurs is. Yeah, definitely. And and I, the reason why I'm super excited about what we're working on is because we're so early on this massive wave of opportunity that's coming to the world. And of course, you know, COVID is, has accelerated a lot of these things, but I, I really think that productivity is going to be it's just the rules of measuring productivity have changed whether it's large companies or or individuals or or, or a small company the, the, you know there are certain rules to measure productivity and efficiency and those rules have been, are being rewritten to and people are saying hey what what does it mean to be productive where do you work from you know how many hours do you put in like what are the rules and so because the the rules of how we measure productivity and efficiency is changing there's going to be a massive change in the world in terms of where people live, how they work, where they work, what they what do they work on, and the ability for people to just really do things with themselves. Um, and and so I I think this massive opportunity set of the way people are working is going to change. It's going to create a lot of potential for people to build infrastructure for that new economy that's emerging. And, and when I say infrastructure, I don't mean just digital infrastructure you know, or digital tools, but I also mean like 
physical infrastructure. And when people ask me what what what's my job, I tell them I'm a plumber because, and I don't mean plumbing in the sense of like actually the water pipes and stuff, but like I'm building physical infrastructure around the world, which means like legal infrastructure, you know, ownership infrastructure in different countries, and that's just the plumbing, right? That's the foundational plumbing of setting up a global business. And you've got to start with the plumbing first, right? The, the, the foundational stuff of building physical infrastructure. And I think that's the hardest part of building a physical business is actually building the, the, the plumbing system. And so those opportunities to help with this new wave of um, the way people travel and work, I think it's going to create massive opportunities for tons of businesses to play a role in. And if you think about digital nomadism, as you know, we're saying, like, I kind of fell into it. it it's not a very old concept. I mean, it, it started probably when the Internet started, which was actually like much further. You know, I, I, I think that Tim Ferriss wrote his book, like, what, 15 years oh, wait. ago? Oh, seven. Yeah. Right. So so digital nomadism is a thing. It's, it's not a very old industry. It's only 10, 15 years old. And that's nothing. And, 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 you know, 10 years is nothing. I think this is just, uh, just starting and, and 20 years from now, 10 years from now, it's going to be, it's going to be, it's going to look very different. I actually think it's going to look very different in the sense that we, as uh, people from the West, right. People who have, uh, who are, I, I would say privileged to have the ability to just pick up a bag and travel. Not everyone has that. I think digital nomadism is going to become a lot bigger in individual countries. So when I look at a country like India, and so we have a space in Bangalore, which is our my favorite space. It's fantastic. People in India don't have the ability to just pick up a bag and get on a plane and travel, right? There's a lot of restrictions to have from, from financing to the to visas and passports and whatnot. But God, digital nomadism within India is becoming really, really popular. So someone living in a 23-year-old, you know, um, coder living in Mumbai, it's like, hey, I don't need to be in Mumbai, which is a terrible city. Why don't I go up to the mountains and, you know, go to Goa and and work from Mm -hmm. there? So digital nomadism within countries is going to be, I think, a much larger opportunity set than actually people from you know, from Michigan flying to Chiang Mai. In China, within China, digital nomadism is going to be a huge opportunity set. Within Indonesia, Indonesians saying, screw Jakarta, I'm going to Bali to go work on my company. That So I, I think these opportunity sets don't necessarily have to be global and international. They can actually be local and regional. And those are the trends that I'm actually super excited about because within Thailand, we're seeing, you know, Thai, Thai entrepreneurs from Bangkok saying, I'm going to the mountains because the city is too just way too congested. I'm going down to the, and so it's going to unlock the, the potential for people without means and without the ability to go move to Estonia or Barbados, right? they're going to be within the countries are going to be and and that is something i'm excited about because god we can help millions of people within india become entrepreneurs 
Yeah, and I mean, I think the same thing will be true about the United States. Like, I think a lot of the, and I mean, there, I think it's you've already seen it for some people. Like, you know, there's some famous examples of people who've already left the big cities. You know, like Joe Rogan moved to Austin from San Francisco. There's several other prominent, uh, you know, CEOs that have moved out of California. But I think that's only beginning, and maybe they're sort of like the the edge of the sword or the the point of the arrow of the people that are leaving. And there's going to be a lot more people that are leaving New York, San Francisco, Chicago to these sort of secondary cities because, well, uh, the cost of living is lower. I still have my great job that's in New York, but I don't need to be in New York anymore. So why should I pay the rent of New York when I can go be in a city? And, you know, I've always said Cincinnati, where I'm at right now, is a phenomenal city just waiting for remote workers because, Great downtown, great restaurants, bars, whatnot, actually really good startup ecosystem. But like, hey, the rent's like, you know, a third of that in New York. So I think you're going to see that in the U.S. as well. Um, And to kind of echo what you're saying, uh, I think even though COVID has been a really terrible thing, the really interesting thing has been that it's, it's really opened up this opportunity and this industry and ecosystem that we're familiar with to, I think, a lot more people. And so you're starting to see sort of these, you talk about physical infrastructure, but I also think there's a lot of um, non-physical infrastructure. I don't, I don't have a smart way of saying that, that is popping up to support these people. You know, you have companies like Safety Wing that are trying to figure out health insurance. You have other companies um, like, for example, NomadX and Flatio that have had the founders of on this podcast are trying to figure out this midterm rental market uh, all over the world. And so there's all of these things popping up now that weren't around, you know, 10 years ago. You have uh, Skylink, you know, from SpaceX that's going to be, you know, doing global Wi-Fi. So you're not going to be worried about uh, internet speeds anymore. So with that in mind, um, this has been a topic that we've been talking a lot about we've been talking about a lot on this podcast is this sort of like, what are the next 10 years going to look like? Because all of the things we thought we were going to see in the next five, 10 years have now just blown up. And there's a lot more things. So from your point of view, what are some of those opportunities? Like what are some of the areas that you think are wide open as an opportunity for people to create and, and build new things for digital nomads? Oh yeah. I mean, great, great, great question. And, um, I don't, I don't have a magic ball, so I don't really know, but here's some- Just op- in your opinion, if, if, if you were to roll the dice, so to say, you know. Yeah. Um, the, the first thing that comes to my mind, because I've seen it firsthand this year, and now that we're part of the Draper startup ecosystem um, and, and helping people raise capital is, um, is a big part of what we do. So we've got the physical infrastructure hospitality piece going on, but we, you know, we have, we have three, three verticals. We've got the physical infrastructure hospitality. We've got the education business and we have the business where we help people raise money. Uh, what I've seen on, on both the education and the, the um, capital raising part is the movement of capital has just become more global than it was pre-COVID. And the reason for that is you have investors now doing deals from their laptop. They're not traveling anywhere. So they're doing more deals because they have more time. And they're saying, hey, if I'm doing deals and investing in people without meeting them, why do I why am I only restricted investing in my city or my country? So we're seeing 
investments happening cross-border a lot more than they were happening before. And so the movement of capital is becoming the velocity is higher and, you know, and, and the spread of capital is going much more global. So that's a great opportunity for, for let's say us, we're, we're helping people, we're helping people from Myanmar raise money from Silicon Valley. You know, like I, we just sent a bunch of deals to, to Tim to say, hey, here's the top deals in Myanmar. I hope he invests in one of these. And if he does, it's going to be phenomenal because that deal structure would never have happened a few years ago, right? Like it's the idea of a, of a investor from Silicon Valley investing in a country in Myanmar is just, just a few years ago, it would have been so wild, but now it's just like commonplace. And so amazing opportunities in that space uh, of, of uh, investments, global investments, on the, on, on the education piece, I think uh, it's still very early stage where a lot more people need access to education digitally. And, and um, you know, because we have spaces around the world, we're seeing that there are not as many education, digital education platforms, let's say in Indonesia or in, or in Russia as compared to what's available in say, you know, the US or, and so um, the, acts, the, the, the distribution of um, education digitally to more and more people is a huge opportunity set in local languages, if I, if I can say that. So for instance, you know, people think of education in India, digital education, but India has 50 languages. And, and all the digital education that's being done is in English or in the, you know, one or two. So local language education for, you know, countries in Africa, et cetera, that's a huge opportunity set. Um, and then I also think a lot of like micro communities because we, we you know, as, as people in the digital nomad sphere talk about community a lot, but I, I'm seeing a trend of like micro communities so for instance, we recently just launched here in Singapore, um, a mompreneurs group to help mothers who are, who are you know, trying out various different entrepreneurial endeavors. That's a huge opportunity set uh, or like artpreneurs or you know, like these micro communities um, or like foodpreneurs. And I, I, I think these very specific niches, if that's the right word, of like these micro communities is going to be a huge opportunity as well. So these are all the things that I am sort of just observing from, from the view of our business. Awesome. Well, Vikram, I got to say, um, thank you so much for coming on. I've, I've had a ton of fun talking with you and I'm really excited about what you guys are doing. And um, if anybody's you know, who's listening is interested in uh, visiting uh, a Draper startup house once, you know, COVID is over uh, or they want to connect with you. I know that you guys also have a free network that people can join. It's like a, a Slack a Slack group I'm a part of that they can go and like, meet other people. Where can they find out more about all of that? Yeah, the best place is just draperstartuphouse.com, our website. And on there, you can if you're if you're raising capital, we have a tab that's ventures. You can uh, learn more about that there. Uh, if you're looking for education, we've got an education tab. If you want to join our uh, den, the Draper Entrepreneur Network, uh, we have a Slack channel. You can it's right on the website. 
Uh, we're on LinkedIn, on Facebook, on Instagram. We're not on TikTok yet, but we should we should get on to TikTok. But yeah, we're on Twitter. Um, we're we're on all the social media um, platforms. But our website's probably the best place to be, or or our LinkedIn. Awesome, man. Well, thank you so much for coming by. Uh, I really appreciate it. <laughs>